Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning uh, Ask the, Ex the Experts, if I could ever pronounce that correctly, uh, session. Uh, it's really good to see each one of you. Uh, I don't actually can see you, but I know you're there uh, having some coffee, enjoying the Friday morning, uh, getting ready for the weekend. Uh, and I do want to wish uh, our, our colleagues, our Jewish colleagues, a happy new year. I know it's a time of, uh, of, uh, of a reflection celebration starting this evening through the weekend. I just want to let you know that we care about you and uh, we are just enormously proud to be uh, part of, of, of a big family uh, here in, the, in this world. So, uh, so happy new year to you. And again, we come back to uh, our, our Friday morning session with uh, John Schreiber, uh, what we call him our own Dr. Fauci, uh, giving us the, the real facts and uh, what is going on, where we're going, and what he thinks may be the, the, the future uh, for COVID-19 uh, with science uh, and a sense of optimism at the same time. And, and today we'll be joined also by, uh, by our chief of psychology, uh, Dr. Melissa, uh, <laughs> I can't speak to that, I don't know what it is, maybe I need more coffee, Dr. Melissa Santos, uh, who recently took that job, and uh, we're just really proud of what she's doing, and, with, and she will share with you some really, really interesting elements of the mental health issues in the era of COVID, which uh, all of us have been dealing with, uh, with patients, families, and in some cases, our own families and, and, our, and ourselves. So uh, fasten your seatbelts. Uh, John will carry us through his uh, usual number of wonderful slides, and then Dr. Santos will pick us up, and then we'll have some questions at the end. So uh, Dr. Schreiber, if you could take the podium and uh, bring us home. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Salazar. Uh, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here and welcome to uh, our colleagues across Connecticut, New England, and actually I gather 10 to 15 states each time. So it's a pleasure to be here um, today. Uh, we have a lot to cover and then I'm very interested to hear Dr. Santos because all of us I know are a little frayed uh, through all of this and uh, I think Dr. Santos will, get, will really be very helpful today. So, so stay tuned. Here we go. If we go or not. So uh, there we go. All right, so I continue uh, to let you know that there is light at the end of the tunnel now. The vaccine research and clinical trials are moving ahead very quickly. Um, now, realistically, however, I agree with the head of the CDC who said, we're talking about spring of 21 and summer of 21 to get mass vaccinations. And I, I think that's probably a correct estimate. We are understanding more and more every day. I'm gonna show you some fascinating new data every day. There's more data coming out on this virus in record time. Uh, and we have the most advanced technologies in the history of medicine addressing this pandemic. And it's showing. Uh, the fact that we're learning so much so fast is showing that. So there is light at the end of the tunnel, however, we have a tough few months ahead of us to get to the end of the tunnel. Now, here's Connecticut death rate uh, this week, and it's extremely low, which is fantastic. Unfortunately, you will see that the state of Connecticut is undergoing an uptick. We've gone from very few cases daily, 20 to 50, to approximately 200 to 250 new cases a day. So we are in an uptick. It's not surprising. Uh, we've opened some things up. We have schools going, but this means that all of us need to be vigilant. Wear your mask, keep your distance. Don't throw your hands up because we're tired of it. There is an uptick. We can control it, but only if everyone does what we need to do. So keep watching this. We will keep watch with you, but there are over 200 new cases a day in Connecticut right now. 
Now, unfortunately, the United States uh, continues to truck along here um, around 40,000 new cases a day. That is by far the largest number of new cases of any developed country in the world. This is not a success. It's just factual. We are the worst among any developed country. That's just the facts. So we have work to do. Uh, and I don't think we want to wait for a vaccine in July. We really need to get this down and get our new numbers of new cases down. And we struggle to do that. And, and you'll see why shortly. I'll show you some interesting data. Now, we continue, unfortunately, also to have about 800 to 1,000 COVID-related deaths per day. Unacceptable. The largest death rate of any developed country. Another number of deaths of any developed country, not necessarily death rate. And again, and from my perspective, um, we know enough, we are smart enough and have the resources to make this less. Now, the case numbers now, uh, the South is declining and the Northeast is a little bit of an uptick, as you saw, but we're relatively stable. These case numbers in the United States are now driven by very rapid growth in the Midwest. This is North Dakota. And you can see completely uncontrolled increase in cases, uh, 400 cases a day or more. Now, this puzzled me. You know, North Dakota is a rural state. And um, I began, is there a state that's similar to North Dakota? North Dakota, by the way, is uh, relatively underpopulated and rural. And in fact, Vermont's quite similar. Uh, North Dakota has a population of 762,000, Vermont 624,000. It's not that Vermonters just eat granola. I mean, if you looked, and I, did, I took the slide out, I promise, I'm gonna talk about it anyway. If you look at gun ownership, for example, there are more guns in Vermont than there is in North Dakota. Everybody has a gun in Vermont, because that's the culture. But Vermont has almost no COVID cases, literally you know, a few a day and very few deaths. And you see North Dakota just rocketing off. What is going on? We're in the same country. This, isn't, this shouldn't be that hard. And I look down and you can see, I'll tell you what's going on. Why would two rural states with similar site populations, and by the way, the demographics are almost identical between North Dakota and Vermont in demographics. North and South Dakota lead the US in COVID growth and both states have rejected any mask requirements. And Vermont, the governor issued a mask mandate and there's, there's very strong physical distancing rules in Vermont. And the fact of the matter is that the Vermont economy has reopened and the schools are reopening because they have no COVID. So I think this is why, and we know what to do, and we need to be doing it across the country, and we would get this under control and then have a lot less people die by the time a vaccine is available. Wisconsin epidemic is taking off. As I said, the upper Midwest and Midwest is now driving the increase in cases in the United States and the death rate. Now, how is the rest of the world handling COVID? I think this is important. Um, I've mentioned before, you used to watch the news in the US and about 10 minutes of Walter Cronkite and others was about what's going on in the rest of the world. We don't see that anymore. You know, we see the fires in the West Coast, we see the hurricanes in the South, we see, you know, uh, Congress fighting. We just don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. So I thought I would review how is the rest of the world managing COVID right now. And the EU, with the exception of France and unfortunately now Spain, uh, has done well. Uh, Germany in particular uh, has reopened the schools and a lot of the economy. The China, China is low, very low COVID numbers and stable, but I, I, the data are questionable. I don't know what the data mean. South America is very mixed. Uh, Chile is in very good shape. Argentina, terrible. Brazil, terrible. So it depends on the government and whether they've instituted public health controls. And the United Kingdom, unfortunately, has a very large resurgence underway as well. So let me show you some of this. 
Italy, which was the worst in the world for a while, has continued to manage it. Now they have an uptick, but look at their uptick. It's a thousand cases a day and they've leveled it off and the country is working hard to control it. And the uptick is because they reopened a lot of things, including schools. So, but it's managed, it's managed. And, and they're not having 40,000 cases a day. And if you multiplied the thousand a day, Italy's having, you still wouldn't get the number the United States have based on population. Germany uh, has the same situation, a well-controlled epidemic with an uptick that has leveled off and continues to be controlled and a very low death rate. So the EU, most of the EU is controlling this epidemic, but not all. France, for example, has a, a wild resurgence that they've been unable to control right now. And the rest of the EU is quite worried that this will spread across the European Union. So this is with us still. And uh, this pandemic is not magically going away. We're gonna to have to manage it for another six to eight months until we have effective immunization available. The United Kingdom also is undergoing a robust resurgence. There's about 3000 cases a day there now um, from almost none. And so this is a big deal. And I know the prime minister there has reinstituted geographically, depending on the area of the UK, a number of shutdowns. So each country is trying to tighter how much of the economy you can reopen before the rate of new cases and deaths increase. And, uh, and many of the countries are struggling with it. Now, we never got to the low point that the UK got to. We never conquered the first wave. So we're a little bit different in there. Let's go into some other data. Now, the MMWR, which is still, at least today, allowed to publish, I guess there was a question as to whether MMWR would be shut down because this is the kind of data they share, it's truth. So they did a great study. They looked in Utah at childcare centers, 12 kids got COVID and, um, uh, in two childcare centers. And then they found out that 12 people who had contact with the children outside the daycare center got infected, including parents and siblings, and one parent was hospitalized. So the reality is children who got COVID, small children, at two childhood daycare centers can spread it to household members and adults. It's not as an effective spread as you get with an, a young adult super spreader, but it can happen. And we need to know this. These are the sort of data that help guide us as we open daycare centers and schools. And you don't want to suppress these data. You want to understand the data and then act on it. So these are the data. And I, I think these uh, inform us very well that there's going to be some spread. It's not a particularly effective spread, but it's there and we have to be vigilant. Now, Connecticut schools are open. Uh, I, I, sh I showed you the website last time. This is uh, addendum five that's there on the website of the DPH and Connecticut um, Education Department. And this one talks about what to do when there are cases. And what I've done, um, this letter, which I pirated, has been sent to the superintendents of schools across the state. And it's straight CDC management. What do you do when you have symptoms of COVID in the school? You know, how do you isolate them? And in, in, in fact, what they're doing also is they're sending uh, you to primary, your primary care provider and getting, uh, suggesting testing or not, and, and it goes from there. But it's straight CDC, uh, and there has been input uh, by both uh, Yale and Connecticut Children's in these guidances, and, and I'm confident, actually, that they're well thought out. Now, the execution in a school district where there are lots of kids is going to be challenging, but this is the guidance to superintendents of school districts to follow CDC guidelines if there's a suspected case of COVID uh, in their schools. Now, there, there's 
incredible amounts of data coming out. Um, and one of the things I wanted to focus on are new data on MISI, the inflammatory disorder we see in children after they've been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. And in this study, what they did is they had 41 kids who were infected with COVID. They had 19 healthy children. They had a bunch of Kawasaki kids. And then they had 13 classic MISI cases of hyperinflammation and they weren't acutely infected with SARS. And they looked at every immune study you can think of on these kids, you know, flow cytometry, everything. And I can't touch on all the data, but suffice it to say that COVID, acute COVID-19 was different than MISI, and they were both different than Kawasaki. And what this table shows, there are a bunch of different parameters, and they have the statistics showing the difference from Kawasaki disease, and whether it's platelets or the age group was older, it goes on, and it's quite different than Kawasaki when you collect this together and look at that. And one of the big differences here is that there is IL-17 mediated inflammation in Kawasaki, which is the center with the arrow, and you can see the purple are Kawasaki kids in IL-17. And then you can see the gray are actually MISI cases, the multi-system uh, multi inflammatory disorder. This is just one of the parameters that differ from Kawasaki. So, it, it appears that this is a different inflammatory disorder, although it's similar often in clinical presentation. So just some new data on this. We're hoping we don't see a lot more cases of this, but we need to be prepared. The spike protein uh, that we have mentioned many times, which binds to the ACE2 receptor and is key in all of our vaccine strategies, is now mutating. Now the mutation rate appears to be much, much slower than with influenza, for example. But you can see here what they've done. They've circled one model of a mutation that is a confirmation of the spike protein that actually uh, enables better binding to cells to the ACE2 receptor. Not a good thing. So, uh, you know, you could worry about this, but the technology now being applied to figure this out and stay ahead of it is quite remarkable. I'm going to show you a paper that just came out from University of Washington and Vanderbilt. And what they did actually is they, they expressed SARS-CoV protein, the uh, ACE2 binding spike protein in yeast. And then they found the mutations that enhanced binding and they've developed monoclonal antibodies specific uh, for those uh, mutated spike proteins and they could quickly block it. So the technology is going to be there that if their antibody escaped mutants, we will be very quickly able to identify exactly what the mutation is and respond to it with other monoclonal antibodies and probably vaccines. So uh, the technology to stay ahead of any mutation in this virus is quite strong, and I'm confident uh, that we will be able to manage this. In terms of vaccines, um, I, I don't have a slide, but I just give you some updates. Uh, Moderna, which makes the RNA vaccine um, in the United States, has released about 135 pages of paper uh, showing their various um, results. And, and one of the challenges with this vaccine is going to be that it looks like it may prevent some infection, but not as much as one would hope. But if you do get infected with this vaccine, it's a very mild case. So it's possible that the Moderna vaccine will not prevent as many infections as we'd hoped. I don't know yet. That's sort of some preliminary results. And I mentioned last week the Novavax vaccine, which is a more classic technology of recombinant spike protein, generates enormously high titers. Uh, that's in phase three, and we'll find out whether that vaccine works. What's going to happen is there are going to be several vaccines, probably this winter, that begin to become available for key personnel. 
and going into the spring, um, there'll be more mass uh, vaccination available. So we're, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I can't tell you which vaccine will be chosen yet or which vaccine I would choose based on the data because the data are just coming in. But we need to watch this closely because we need to figure out what will be the best vaccine for children. And I do not know the answer yet to that. And children are not included in many of these clinical trials. Uh, I'm gonna stop here and um, mention it to, in conclusion, the good, the bad, and the ugly of today, September 18th, 2020. Research continues probably at the fastest pace in the history of, of any sort of pathogen on this new pathogen, SARS-CoV-2. Several potential vaccines will be available in six to eight months. They're not gonna be available October 30th. Um, the US unfortunately continues a non-uniform response to this pandemic, and it is greatly increasing the numbers of new cases, the morbidity and mortality that is avoidable from this virus. And the politicization of the pandemic, in my view, has injured the credibility, trust, and compliance with public health responses across the country. Here, we need to be vigilant that does not interfere with us controlling our uptick in Connecticut. I'm confident it will not. Um, in that, I will, I will hand this off to Dr. Santos, and I look forward to questions later this hour. Thank you, John, uh, for that outstanding update. Always bring new information. Really appreciate it. Uh, so we uh, will follow with Dr. Melissa Santos, uh, who's an associate professor of pediatrics, and she is the interim division chief of pediatric psychology. Uh, uh, Melissa has been with Connecticut Children's for a number of years. Uh, she's truly an expert, uh, has been working extensively uh, in the obesity uh, arena uh, and works in, in Dr. Fink's obesity program. Uh, she's going to share some uh, very important issues with the, of COVID, uh, mental health in the area of COVID-19. And just one comment to follow up on, the, on what John was saying. Uh, the, it, I learned that uh, over the past four or five months, there have been 22,000 22, PubMed articles related to COVID-19, which is unprecedented. We've never had that many you know, publications. So if somebody tells you they're keeping up with the literature, don't believe him because you really can't. So Dr. Santos. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. So I'm excited to be here representing the Division of Pediatric Psychology to talk about, um, obviously, a passion topic for me, which is mental health in the era of COVID-19. Um, I could be here all morning to talk about mental health, and it's such a critical topic. But what I hope to do in the limited time that I have is to describe some of the mental health prevalence changes that we've seen during COVID-19, to identify some of the groups that are at increased risk for mental health uh, during COVID-19, and then try to wrap this up by talking about some ways that we can stay um, managing our anxiety during this time. So let me start with talking to you a little bit about some of the changes in mental health prevalence that we've seen. And I'll orient you to this slide um, a little bit because you're going to see it a couple times. So this is Connecticut data. This is from this, uh, the census. It's the Household Pulse Survey. So these are surveys that go to families um, online to complete. Um, they're done yearly. Um, and families as part of this complete measures of depression and anxiety. At the bottom is the weekly, uh, the weeks that the data was collected. So it is weekly from the end of April uh, till the end of August. What you see on the side is the uh, percent of people endorsing symptoms of, in this case, anxiety. Yellow line is where we were last year. So last year, adults in Connecticut were reporting anxiety at about 8.1%. And what you can see now consistently um, over the last five months is that anxiety has been spiking throughout. There's some dips and dives, which we'll talk about in two slides about why potentially we're seeing that. 
but what we're tending to see is anxiety at much increased risk every week for adults in here in the state of Connecticut. When we look at depression, same thing. Those are the weeks at the bottom, the percent reporting symptoms of depression. We're seeing those symptoms continue to increase each and every week um, with some dives going down, but then steadily going back up. Last year, 6.5%, this year, much higher. And when we put them together, um, it's interesting. So this is the symptoms of anxiety um, or depression each week here in Connecticut. Um, last year, it was at 10.9%. This year, um, as you can see together, it's much higher, but what's interesting is where it started to go down. So if you recall, May 20th was when the uh, state of Connecticut was gonna start their reopening. And I think for a lot of people, this was a really hopeful time for um, potentially some changes going back to normal. And you see a dip going down there in terms of people's reported depression and anxiety scores that immediately sort of went back up. And when you see phase two, you don't see a decrease happening in anxiety or depression scores. And then obviously now with the return back to school, we're starting to see more symptoms of anxiety or depression uh, being reported by our adults. So when we look at pediatric mental health, we have a little bit less data, but what we know is concerning, um, and I just like that picture because I always think of our kids as superheroes, but we know that during this time, our kids have experienced multiple disruptions. They've had lots of questions that they turn to us as adults to answer that we always don't know the answer to. Um, and they've also been really disrupted by school closures. If I had told kids back in January, like, hey, the last three months of the year, you can sit at home in your pajamas and never have to leave and you could just do school online. I think kids would have loved that idea and they hated it. I don't know one kid who loved school online during this whole time. Um, and so we know that that has been very disruptive as well. Data coming out from our colleagues in the UK and Australia are showing that kids are experiencing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Up to 81% are showing symptoms um, now about six months into the pandemic. Our data coming from our colleagues in China as well as here in the US show depression and anxiety increasing over 50% in kids during this time. Eating disorders, that is something we've seen here at Connecticut Children's as well as our US data showing a sharp increase in eating disorders during the pandemic. Behavioral problems, also data that we have here at Connecticut Children's, as well as what we've gotten uh, from our US data. And suicide attempts, which I'll talk to you about in a couple more slides, um, are concerned with that. But what perhaps is most concerning isn't just that we're seeing a, a sharp increase in prevalence rate for our kids with mental health, it's what history tells us is gonna happen next. So if next Friday, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Schreiber come here and tell you there's a vaccine, we're all gonna get it, we're gonna line up over there, we're all gonna get it, and COVID's gonna be cured, they're shaking their head that they would like that to occur. The, yes, um, the hiccup with that is that the mental health impact is likely not to go away. So what history tells us is that after natural disasters, after significant occurrences of things, the mental health impact lasts for a long time. 9-11, 15, 16 years after 9-11, kids impacted uh, by 9-11 are still showing signs of increased anxiety, substance abuse disorders, for kids that underwent uh, natural disasters like Hurricane Sandy, four years, five years later, still increased levels of depression and anxiety versus their peers that did not go through that. So we know that unfortunately we may be in for a long haul in terms of what these symptoms are gonna look like uh, long-term that we may be dealing with a mental health problem long after the medical impact of COVID has gone away. So are there group differences? Are there uh, differences in people that we're seeing? 
This is going back to the same data I showed you before, except now instead of Connecticut, this is US data. And I should probably also state that this data is going to be slightly skewed. So you have to have an email address, you have to have a computer to complete this. And chances are, if you're having symptoms of depression and anxiety, you're probably not completing a census survey. So these rates are likely a little bit low. But what we're seeing is that our symptoms of depression and anxiety by gender, there is a gender difference with females having significant levels of depression and anxiety. Race, ethnicity, this is a little bit messy. Green and yellow um, are people that report being white or Asian. The red, white, and blue is um, uh, people that identify as black, Hispanic, or biracial. And what we know is that we have a racial and ethnic uh, difference where those that are black, Hispanic, or biracial are reporting significant levels, uh, significantly higher levels of depression and anxiety versus other populations. In terms of educational level, which can also be our marker for socioeconomic status, the less education you've had, so starting with less than your high school diploma, you're more likely to report symptoms of depression and anxiety, and it goes down from there, so that those that have a bachelor's degree or higher are reporting the lowest levels of depression and anxiety, and then going up to less than high school. And then we talk about age. So we know that this is impacting, in terms of depression and anxiety, our young people the most. So the, uh, those between the ages of 18 to 29 are at near 50% reporting symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, and it goes down chronologically pretty much from there. So where our older people, my mom's age, she would hate that I just said that, but my mom's age group are not as impacted by depression and anxiety by this, our younger people are being significantly impacted by this. And while we've mapped this out in terms of gender and race, ethnicity, you also have to realize the impact of all this sort of together. So I work in obesity with young adults. We know that obesity, which is the topic next week, when this all shakes out, is probably gonna be one of the significant predictors, of course, and outcome of COVID. Then you add on race and ethnicity on top of that, that we see a large uh, population of black uh, young adults that are working in nursing homes, that are working in lower paying jobs those are all going to compound so that their depression and anxiety is going to continue to increase over time. But I want to talk about the age in particular because age is what is particularly concerning me about how high depression and anxiety is. So September is Suicide Prevention Month and we know that suicide before COVID was the second leading cause of death for 10 to 14 year olds, 15 to 24 year olds, and 25 to 34 year olds. And it's startling when you think about that it is the second leading cause of death starting at age 10. And that was prior to COVID. And now we're seeing sharp increases in depression and anxiety. And that worries me a whole lot for what we're gonna see for these kids struggling. And we know that now in COVID, 18 to 24 year olds are reporting the highest increases in substance use. So that's new substance use, or if you were a substance user before, increased use of substances, as well as serious suicidal ideation. And it's not just that age group. Our colleagues in China have demonstrated that starting, uh, this is a sample of kids starting at age nine uh, to 15 in an area of China that was actually not heavily impacted by COVID, six months, over a six month period, so right before the start of COVID to the end of COVID, they've or six months into COVID, they have now seen a statistically significant increase in the number of uh, non-intentional self-injury, um, suicidal ideation, suicidal plans, and suicide attempts. That's over a six month period for kids with a mean age of 12, which is frightening. And I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention the impact on our healthcare workers. Um, this data is a little bit old um, in terms of how many have been infected by COVID, but the mental health data shows true. We are seeing within our healthcare workers a significant level of depression, anxiety, 
post-traumatic symptoms, and not just from frontline workers, not just people taking care of infected patients, but those that are being exposed, those that feel like they should be doing more than what they're doing, we are seeing a huge increase in their mental health as a result of that. We know that prior to COVID, we lost one physician a day to suicide uh, prior to COVID. That number is likely gonna increase and that doesn't account for our other healthcare workers. We know that we have a significant suicide rate for nurses and we have a significant suicide rate that we never talk about for mental health professionals as well. We have to be mindful of this and we have to be careful in terms of what this mental health impact is gonna do, not only for our kids, not only for our adults, but all of you and all of us in this room as healthcare providers as well. So if you take nothing else from my talk here today, I plead with you to please ask every kid, every time when you're meeting with them to ask them, I don't care if you give it a screener or you ask them as a question, when was the last time? When was the last time you tried to hurt yourself? When was the last time you thought about killing yourself? When was the last time you thought the world would be better off without you? I don't care how you ask, but we have to ask. You could be the one chance that that kid might have said something if somebody had just asked. And you don't have to be perfect at it. You just have to ask and start kids to engage in that conversation and let them know that it's okay to talk about these things. We have to normalize that these thoughts do occur. It doesn't mean that anything bad is going to happen, but we have to talk about it and we have to normalize kids, adults, and healthcare professionals feeling comfortable to express the thoughts that they're having. I'm somehow now going to segue after that kind of rather depressing talk to now talking about, sorry, managing anxiety and sort of wrapping this up on some kind of like uh, happier note of sorts. But we know these sort of things that we're, we're still in for a long haul with COVID and we have to figure out different ways to keep managing our anxiety, managing our stress, not only for us, for our kids, for our families along the way. And part of that is giving ourselves a little bit of justice and a little bit of leniency that the, the routines that we used to have prior to COVID, uh, set bedtime, this, those, and th that, those are good things to have, but we may need to build new routines at home in order to best manage the things that are going around us. We also need to remember to do the things that help you and your child recharge. You know what like recharges your battery. You need to do more of that and you need to engage your kid in that as, as well. We need to model when we're having a tough time and work together to find solutions to order to feel better. On our Connecticut Children's Facebook page um, and our blog page, um, you can find how to create a coping toolkit for kids. So a place, a, a box where they have things that they know they can always turn to that have things to help them manage their anxiety. You can go to our Facebook page and watch a Facebook Live where I created a sensory bottle to help kids calm down um, using glitter and hot water. Um, doing more as a family. We were talking about this before, um, before we started this about, you know, if there's any golden light in some of this pandemic is how much time people are spending with their family, which I guess could be a good thing or a bad thing, but doing more as a family, it was really nice sometimes to go out to the parks and see so many people out walking and getting outdoors with their families, being active and moving your body, figuring out ways to improve your sleep. So if it means downloading an app that makes it sound like it's raining in your room because that would help you sleep, then that's what you do. And to reach out for additional support if needed. Your, men, your friendly mental health professional, your pediatrician, your primary care doctor, or if you're a Connecticut Children's employee, um, our EAP program. 
I just want to point out the additional resources that we have on the Connecticut Children's uh, Resource page for COVID, um, which has handouts for families and providers on more mental health topics. Um, it will also be on our soon-to-be-launched Division of Pediatric uh, webpage. And if you are a healthcare professional that sometimes struggles uh, with talking to kids or adults about topics like suicide and mental health and obesity and transgender status, you can join us on Tuesday for Grand Rounds where we will talk about that. And with that, I thank you for your time. And I am turning this over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Melissa. You can see I'll take the fifth on that, but um, I think the head of our CDC um, expounded a what I believe to be a reasonable estimate of mass immunization happening after the spring when a vaccine is introduced to essential workers and then would go on to mass immunization over the summer. It could happen earlier. Um, that would be wonderful. It could happen a little bit later. And I think that's pretty much what he said. Um, stay out there for a second. I'm not sure which rapid you're talking about. So there, there's sort of two. There's a Cepheid, which is PCR, and, and some large organizations and practices have that machine. It's very accurate and it's fast. If you're talking about that, you don't need to follow a PCR. Now, there's a, an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay test that's rapid from Abbott and a couple of other uh, companies. And they specify that if you get a negative, you have to do PCR. So I'm not sure which um, rapid you're talking about. I think the school districts, um, from what I've heard, are using CDC criteria and are relying on a confirmatory negative PCR. Um, but I'd have to go back and check the DPH and Department of Education website. But I'm pretty sure that's what they're thinking of when they ask for a negative test. To an increase in in physician suicide, any any have you seen anything, or have you or any comments on the impact on the healthcare team? Yeah, so there's some preliminary data that suggests that it's coming out from China. I haven't seen any here in the U.S. I think there have been a couple high-profile suicides of physicians that have occurred that have made the news. The data that I've seen has been from China, which shows an increase of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and suicide in healthcare workers. I have not seen U.S. data come out just yet. 
and for you also, Melissa, the, how do we know if uh, the perturbations of prevalence of depression and anxiety are significant or not? I guess they are significant. They're significant. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, the next one is for, uh, for, uh, for Dr. Shriver. And this one's from Tom Bender, uh, pediatrician in, in, in Avon. Uh, Dr. Schreiber, what is your opinion on the safety of planned return to full in-person school at the high school level with an open campus, no cohorting, uh, an indoor maskless lunch? Uh, that's a challenging question. Um, I think the best way, I'll answer it indirectly, I think if we maintain masks um, and physical distancing in a high school environment where kids are uh, perhaps more likely to comply if they're watched and reminded um, is likely to be successful. I think an open uh, cafeteria where everyone's unmasked, unless they're separated by distance uh, and actually some barriers, I would worry about that. And uh, there are some pictures in other high schools where they've actually separated kids out in the cafeteria and there's some plexiglass barriers. But in the absence of that, having uh, lots and lots of kids in the same cafeteria with no masks, um, is a risk situation, one I wouldn't be entirely happy with. From uh, Amy Agoglia, when is the best day to test a child who just started with, two mild, uh, with, with mild symptoms? If we test day one and it is negative, is that potentially too early? And will we possibly send them back with COVID developing and, and risk the spread? Should we wait three days from the start of mild symptoms? But if the symptoms are high risk, then I believe we would test right away. That's a good question. I and, and Juan, uh, uh, please dive in on this. I think in general, if you're already symptomatic with respiratory symptoms, you're going to be uh, having viral excretion and your PCR will be positive. So in my view, in general, if you're symptomatic, you're likely, and you happen to have COVID, you're likely to have a positive test. Now it's always possible you're early in the illness. And, and one of the ways uh, we've been managing that in the, in the presence of a negative test but the individual is short of breath and loses taste and smell, obviously you're gonna repeat the test because it's possible that it was negative or falsely negative at the time early in the illness. So, but in general, if you're symptomatic, you're likely to be positive if it happens to be COVID. By the way, there, there does appear to be another respiratory virus circulating because we've had a number of kids who have an acute respiratory cold, symptoms who've been COVID tested and are COVID negative. So we do have a non-COVID respiratory illness circulating in Connecticut right now. Yeah, and I would agree with you, John. I think if somebody's symptomatic and they either have fever, rhinorrhea, cough, the PCR is very effective in that setting. So if the PCR is negative and is done properly, uh, I think it's unlikely that that patient has COVID. Uh, for you also, and then we'll move on to Dr. Santos, does vaccine in spring of 2021 mean enough vaccine and distribution ability? Will there be there as well? How about Israel? For me to all panelists, um, some schools go virtual and others keep in-person learning ongoing with confirmed cases. Why? Um, so there are two questions there. Yeah. Uh, so one is about immunization. The summer one, I didn't quite understand that, the immunization question. Uh, is there enough, if, if you think we'll have enough vaccine by the spring of 2021? Well, I don't, it's a great question. So I, the question is, are we going to have enough vaccine? I don't know which vaccine is going to be the most effective um, yet. Those data are really in their early stages. Um, I would say that every company that has a vaccine that is likely to be successful is organizing to produce millions and millions of doses. And the United States government has also helped subsidize that. So I'm pretty confident that there will be millions and millions of doses, but you know, the timing on that and the logistics 
just think about influenza every season. I mean, it's complicated to immunize a lot of people, so it's going to take some time. But I'm pretty confident once a vaccine is shown to be highly effective and safe, that they'll ramp up over a few months to get enough vaccine for millions and millions of people. Now, the school question about virtual versus in-person, I mean, there is no right answer. Um, we know that if we're going to open schools in person, we need to do it with masking. We need to have physical separation. Cohorting kids is a great idea. Frequent hand washing. The teachers who are vulnerable are kept out. Those who are not vulnerable wear masks. I think we know what to do. It's hard to do it. The mix of virtual and in-person is thought that um, the idea behind that is, well, we'll reduce the numbers of hours that people are together and perhaps keep uh, COVID from spreading a little bit that way. I don't know if there are any data showing that that works, uh, but it's, it's, it's a nice idea. Um, Israel has had a, a profound resurgence and is back on lockdown today. And they're doing it deliberately before Rosh Hashanah because the, that's when people gather in synagogues and in family gatherings and they're trying to prevent further spread. They had very good control initially, but I think the feeling is they probably reopened a little too early there. I think that's the question about Israel. It is. Uh, Dr. Santos, and, and sorry for those of you who could not hear my questions before. Uh, the good news is I guess you're all engaged because we had at least 20 messages telling me that, that you couldn't hear me. Uh, but we very quickly shifted to a different microphone, so sorry about that. Uh, Dr. Santos, uh, uh, can you tell us more about why eating disorders are on the rise? Why do children take the route during an emotional crisis? Yeah, so it's been interesting. Um, we've had a, a sharp increase, and the stories kind of all stay the same. I was home more. Um, I started to exercise a lot more. I started to watch what I'm eating. It's really interesting when you think about eating disorders, particularly anorexia, being around issues of control and really wanting to control certain things in your life. During this time, there really hasn't been a lot that you can control, but the amount of activity you can do, the food you bring in, that has been something that you can control quite well, and I think that's why we've seen a rise. So for you also, there's a subgroup of children with autism uh, who prefer remote learning at home than in person at school. Is this good? Okay. Um, how can we support at least uh, respond to this? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because the kids that I, that I see in my clinic that actually like online learning are the kids that get relentlessly bullied and teased at school. And so their self-esteem and their mood has gotten much more improved with remote learning. I think kids benefit from being in the social situation. I think if learning-wise, their learning may be best virtual, I still think the social component needs to be brought in some way. And also for you, um, ED staff needs to review the somatic symptoms of anxiety. I've had many kids, teens, with complaint of chest pain, which, for, uh, which in further questioning is the pressure in the chest from anxiety, and two, feeling or of unable to swallow, which is also a symptom of anxiety. Um, any comment on that? Yeah, so I think oftentimes what we know is that many kids present to our emergency room with those somatic symptoms, the tummy aches, the headaches, the chest pain, when really there are, a, there's a mental health condition sort of underlying it being anxiety probably being the prime one. I do think it's part of the assessment that we do have to ask about those symptoms and perhaps other situations or circumstances that are going on that make those symptoms better or worse. All right, very good. Um, do you have uh, any other recommendations on how those of us that work directly in the community can help build community strength and resilience for kids and youth experiencing mental health challenges, particularly kids and youth from marginalized communities? I didn't quite hear your question, I'm sorry. Uh, the question is, this is from Nilda Fernandez, one of our, our, our social workers in the HIV program. Do you have recommendations on how 
Those of us that work directly in the community can help build community strength and resilience for kids and youth experiencing mental health challenges. Yeah, I think the way that we can still stay connected through kids with kids virtually, I think, tends to be really helpful for helping to build that. Um, I think if there's been any plus in this sort of um, pandemic world has been the opportunities that have opened up for some of our kids that are marginalized that otherwise wouldn't seek out services, but feel comfortable doing that in a virtual format to be able to do that. And so I think the more that we can make those things available to kids, I think that that's beneficial for them. If similarly, what can, what can we do as pediatricians to better advocate for our, for the adolescent population as resources and access to mental health becomes limited? Golly, I wish I knew the answer to that. I think keep fighting. Um, you know, it's so tough because we we and this may be a soapbox I'm about to go on, we, we give a lot of service to mental health, but we don't always put the money sort of behind it. We saw that here in Connecticut after Sandy Hook when mental health funding got cut. Um, I think we still have to advocate. I think if you're struggling with finding resources for um, your patients for mental health to reach out and we, will, we can find people uh, that can work with them. Um, but I think we still have to keep making noise to really help this population, to help all kids with their mental health. Okay, and then one, one last one for you and then we'll go back to, to John. Um, have you seen or have you seen it? Uh, have you seen a change in impact with the mental health care you provide through telehealth? Do you think it's effective? I have mixed feelings on telehealth. I think for some kids it is. I think some kids are very nervous being on camera. They don't like to be on camera. Um, but I do think what's been helpful as a psychologist and being able to offer telehealth services is to see the world of a child. Um, it's been very interesting to see even like where kids live in terms of their bedroom, their space, how they keep it. Um, and that's been very, um, I think, helpful as a psychologist in terms of helping with treatment plans um, when kids are in very dark rooms at all times with very heavy drapes and things like that. So I think in terms of, of treatment planning, it's been very helpful to see their world and where they live. Thank you. Um, John, this is for you uh, from Larry Scherzer. Uh, Massachusetts has mandated influenza vaccines for all public school students. In Connecticut, it is required for preschool children and Connecticut children's employees. Do you think that all children going to school in person should be required to get a flu shot? I think that um, all children should get a flu shot. I'll leave it at that. All children and all adults should get a flu shot this season. I think uh, there's no debate about that, how we do it. There'll be some debate, uh, but I think I feel pretty strongly about it. We need to reduce the likelihood that influenza will be relevant this winter. And uh, that will be between masks and physical distancing and immunization. So all of us should be immunized for influenza regardless of age. John, can you remind um, our pediatricians, some of them that are older than 65, which type of influenza vaccine you need should the be high, getting? So, so on the older than 65 um, needs the higher dose vaccine, which actually um, is available if you're on Medicare at usually at CVS, Walgreens, a variety of town immunizations uh, for elderly. So, but you do need the higher dose because elderly tend to make lower um, immune responses to immunizations and to the influenza vaccine as well. So the higher dose is critical in the over 65 age group. Uh, what do you think about the public health implications of the COVID hotbeds at the colleges and universities? Should there be penalties implemented on campuses for blatantly not abiding by the prevention procedures? You know, uh, it's, it's a great question, and uh, there was a, I don't remember, it was 60 Minutes, or there was some news story literally a day or so ago about Bowdoin College in Maine, and how they're, the, this, the college is going, and how they've managed to have no COVID cases and get the buy-in of the students and um, uh, to get people to really do what they need to do to help the public health. So I would argue that with the right leadership, 
the colleges and universities could probably get buy-in of the majority of students and, and the kind of wild parties and things that are spreading COVID could be reduced. I think if you expect 18-year-olds um, to go into a situation where there's not strong guidance and segregate and wear masks 24-7 and not do anything that a late adolescent or young adult would do, uh, I think that's unlikely to be to happen. There are going to be kids who are going to want to run up and do things. So, um, but I, that the fact is, some colleges are able to manage it and they're pulling it off. And so, the public health implications of not doing anything and opening in a college and allowing large numbers of young adults to get sick, and then God forbid sending them home. If they do get sick, you want to keep them there and quarantine them. Uh, is strong, and and I think it could spread um, the uh, virus among a lot of young adults, which will then spill over to more vulnerable populations. So it's an issue. It can be managed. Um, I'm not sure all universities are, however. A couple of testing questions, John. Uh, uh, comment on a rapid, positive rapid test, negative PCR. So that has to do with pot sensitivity, specificity. Yeah, I mean, the, the, if you're talking about the non-PCR rapid, um, the sensitivity is around 70%, which means you will miss some true positives. The specificity is supposed to be pretty good. Uh, in, in other words, if the ELISA is positive, that rapid is positive, it's supposed to be positive, but it's just not as good as PCR. So I'm not surprised you wouldn't get correlations sometimes between the two tests. And by the way, that's the way, that's the reason that um, most of the labs that do that very rapid one that's not PCR, the um, laboratory requires you to do a PCR if it's negative because they know there's a gap in its sensitivity. Yeah, and like any testing, there are a number of uh, issues that, that uh, will, will alter positivity, positivity or negativity, including how you take the test. It has to be done correctly. Right, the specimen needs to be a good specimen, correct? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't know the answer to this question, but uh, I think I do. The CVS drive-through COVID test uses uh, nucleic acid or uh, is, is it a PCR or rapid antigen? I believe the CVS is a PCR-based test. I, you know, acid. if they have the Cepheid machine, it's PCR, and I, I agree with one. I don't specifically know if all CVS are doing it the same, what Connecticut CVS are. It's a question we should ask them. I, do, I don't know the specific answer. I had heard, like, um, one, that it was a PCR-based test. It takes two to three days, so I, so I yeah. believe it's a PCR-based test. But we'll, we'll find out and, and give you some more information. Um, is it known how soon after exposure someone could be infected or contagious? Can yes. So, so in general, uh, it's really 48 hours after you're exposed and then going to 14 days that you could potentially express symptoms and be infectious. If it's 12 hours after you're exposed, then no, you're not infectious yet. So usually we're thinking it's two days. The peak area is around seven, five to nine days is the peak of when you would show symptoms and be infectious, then day four, after day 14, no. So yes, two days would be the cutoff of when you could start getting sick and infect others. All right, question for Dr. Santos. This is from Danielle Warren. Um, who leads our HIV program, and Danielle asks, how should we, how, uh, how should we feel, uh, or how do you feel, that's, that's, she says, delete should, how do we feel uh, we should advocate for extracurricular activities at our schools in order to stave off some of the mental health issues that can increase even further at this time? 
Yeah, it's been a challenge because I know a lot of schools have restricted the extracurricular activities and, and I don't even know the rules anymore about extracurriculars and what uh, people should be doing or not. Um, I would say that I know a lot of people have gotten into pods within their neighborhoods to try to create more physical activity um, opportunities. Um, so I would suggest that, you know, you can use the mental health kind of that we, we do see improvements in mental health with kids being more active and being more engaged in activity. Um, I just don't know if it's going to fly in these safety kind of concerns and I'd be interested in what else could be done in your community for that. Um, so the, we know we have more anxiety and depression. How about more resources to refer kids? So can you comment on entry to our Connecticut children's system? How, how can pediatricians access our healthcare team, mm -hmm. your clinics, Melissa? Yep. So uh, here at Connecticut Children's, our psychologists are all spread around uh, 12 medical clinics. Um, so if you have a patient who's seen in one of our specialty clinics, um, there is likely a there may be a psychologist there and they can access the psychologist through that specialty clinic. If your patient has no contact with uh, Connecticut Children's, um, you can reach out to our care coordination uh, department who will help with locating services in your community. Or if you have a child who lives far away, they can also help as well. Thank you. Um, this is a comment from Julie, Julie Schiff, uh, who's part of our uh, integrated network. And, and Julie says, thank you so much for this talk. From a mental health perspective, these talks have helped so much. Being a part of this network and being able to communicate with colleagues and experts on these calls has been a huge resource. So thank you, Julie, for uh, always tuning in. Uh, we're so glad that this information is helpful to you and, and your colleagues and will continue to do so. So keep those comments uh, coming our way. Uh, always pleased to hear positive feedback. Um, is, and, and I guess we need to, uh, Suzanne Lourdes, is there a hotline for pediatric mental health assistance? Uh, she talked about 211. Yes, there's 211 that you can always access um, for services. Um, if you're looking for services, if you need um, just short of 911, you can always call 211. If you have a kid who's actively in crisis, you should call 911. Is 211 active now? Are there any issues with it in the COVID era? No. Okay, because there was an issue of funding at some point. for. Yeah, no, from what we've heard, they're still quite active. Okay, very good. Um, John, this is for you. Medicare does not cover the increased cost of adjuvant, or maybe it's a comment, um, enhanced flu vaccine, but some private insurance does. And so uh, Dr. Zellenreiter says the difference is $12.50. Would you pay the $12.50? I think you would. Absolutely. And actually, I, I just got an email from Medicare saying that um, Medicare will cover uh, the high-dose influenza vaccine. So it's possible they changed their policy, Ed. You might check. I'm, I'm actually going to obviously test that out shortly myself, but I, I just received notification from Medicare. But if it's $12 difference uh, uh, and not getting influenza, it's an easy choice uh, for me to make. From Neil Stein, uh, in the return to school algorithms, I worry about the symptomatic person with no exposure and a negative test returning only when symptoms resolved or are resolving depends too heavily on report of no exposure and testing seems to only work in situations of very low prevalence. Should the approach be the same as no testing, or should those not tested be allowed to return as persons who test negative? So uh, you're, you're testing negative first. If you, have, if you have a negative PCR, the sensitivity and specificity are pretty good. And so in general, if there's a respiratory illness that's mild and it's a negative PCR and there's not risk, I was, you're not just exposed to a COVID positive patient and you didn't just travel to Florida or North Dakota, in general, we've been saying you would be afebrile for 24 hours and, and symptom-free, and that would allow you to return. I think that's a reasonable uh, course to take. It's not going to be 100% foolproof, but it's reasonable uh, to do that because we know the sensitivity and specificity of the PCR is good. Now, the second part of the question one was, um, 
Yeah, let's move on to the next question because okay. we, we still have a few left and only a few minutes. Yeah. So thank you, Neil. We'll get back to you uh, uh, online. So I appreciate your, your question. Um, any comment on the new recommendations uh, from the state about uh, traveling to hot zones yeah. and coming back? So it's a great question. So as you're aware, the governor, or you may not be aware yet, the governor um, issued uh, an executive order saying that if you're traveling to a hot zone where you used to come back and you would have to quarantine for two weeks unless you were an essential employee, in which case you could get tested, that everyone can now be tested. And the rule is if you're, you get a test 72 hours within 72 hours of returning from the hot zone, it's negative, you're good. Um, you know, I think, uh, again, the, the goal, I think, in the state is to, is to modulate returning from a hot zone and not having people not work and, and yet at the same time trying to be safe. However, if you do it 72 hours before returning, there is a gap. It's possible, for example, you might acquire it the day you left or in the airport if you're traveling uh, in, uh, by air. And then you would come back in the incubation period, you might have the negative test and you'd actually be incubating COVID. That's a worry. And one of the things we've done at Connecticut Children's is we're probably gonna end up doing a second test on day seven for individuals who come back from a hot zone or test negative initially, we'll be doing a second test day seven to close that loop. There is a little bit of a gap, there's a little bit of a risk, but I think the government is trying to modulate restrictions with allowing uh, enough movement of people so that the economy doesn't dry up. And there is no right answer, but there's a gap and you wanna be careful just because someone had a test 72 hours before returning from a hot zone doesn't mean they might not have gotten COVID over the last 24 hours as they're traveling home. So it is a worry. Time for two more questions, and John, this is for you. Uh, it has to do with positivity of PCR. So if, if somebody was, in, was diagnosed with COVID, but three weeks later, they're asymptomatic and their PCR is still positive, are they contagious? Can they bring them back to the office for a physical exam? That's a great question. So we feel, and, and the data are pretty good on this, um, you will excrete virus uh, probably for several weeks, up to maybe even up to 28 days. And um, that virus is not infectious after about day 21. So I'm comfortable saying if it's three weeks out after symptoms ended um, and uh, three days of no fever, symptoms are completely gone. And yet day on week three, you happen to have a positive PCR, you're unlikely to be infectious unlikely but that means in your office so you could bring them back but again in your office you're wearing a mask eye protection and and some protection but in general at three weeks the pcr positivity is not infectious any longer okay one last question for you and then one for melissa uh, so how do we handle time from last exposure to positive case when the child is exposed to a parent who's positive are we assuming the parent is wearing a mask at all times in the home and staying apart from the child so parent is positive at the home, what do we do with a kid? Uh, if the parent's positive, it's going to be important for there to be another negative caregiver to take care of that child separated from the positive parent. In the absence of that, you can assume the child's being exposed, and then you're going to have to manage it, and that child is, is going to be exposed. Now, I will refer you to the CDC website. It's actually, there's an update. There are three scenarios that they put in there of just something like this. The caregiver's infected, yet they're able to separate. Caregiver's infected, but they can't separate. There's all those scenarios in there. They tell you exactly what day, it's on a little calendar, what day the quarantine starts and what day it's safe for them to come back. I don't have time to go there, but it's, it's, it's actually quite nice. I just downloaded it yesterday because this was coming up for us. 
So go to the CDC website, look on the various scenarios, uh, and it's there. Maybe we can find it actually, and we'll put it on uh, on our site. Yes, yeah, so we'll we'll dig that out, John, and yeah. put it on our site, and maybe uh, send an email blast with that uh, for all the. People it's an important question because yeah. it's going to vary. Every case will be a little bit different, and uh, we'll get that on the website. We'll show you. And the CDC has all those scenarios there. Thank you, uh, Melissa. This is the last one for you, and then we have to finish. And uh, and, and the question is, if you're a healthcare provider, where and how should you access resources for your own mental health? What do you recommend? If you're a Connecticut children's uh, healthcare worker, we have a employee assistance program that you can access. That information is on the internet. You can email me if you can't find it. Um, if you're a healthcare professional just out of the community, I would start with your primary care doctor to find resources um, and go from there. I'm going to ask John to have uh, just a final comment, and then we'll close. And thank you, Dr. Santos. Uh, again, thank all of you for being here today. Um, we do have another six to eight months ahead of us, um, but I want to let everyone know we are all in this together, and Connecticut Children's exists to serve our patients in the community. As you can see from our, our, my mental health colleague here, uh, we have a COVID on call during the day. We have infectious disease doctors on call, hospitalists. And if questions do come up, call our one call number and we are there to try to answer them for you as best we can. We are all in this together. And again, thank you for coming today. Appreciate it. Thank you everyone. Be safe. We'll see you next Friday. Bye-bye.